Here we are, episode 11 of the Awkward In Between podcast. It's been, uh, we've had some good response the last episode with uh, Pastor Matt Prater. Yeah, this is one of those rare opportunities we have to actually talk about the last episode and it's actually gone to air because I've been in America for three weeks and we haven't recorded for a while. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. I'll tell you what, it's been really interesting too. Um, There's been a, a, a significant change for me over the last couple of weeks since we recorded last episode because I've actually not had anything alcoholic to drink for like nearly, you know, it's been about a month since we recorded our last episode. It has. But I'm going to break that today. <laughs> I feel bad now. Yeah, well, you should. <laughs> but, I don't feel um, that bad. But no, no. And, and, know, and let me just reiterate, I've been in America for three weeks. So you've drunk so, nothing but alcohol for the last... Well, I stopped for a few days completely when I got back mm. and really felt it because I'm not sure there were any days while I was over there that I didn't drink something. Uh, but I'm definitely, yeah, trying to get in more in balance and moderation. But what have we got today... Oh, yes. Well, okay. So I've brought this one here. Uh, it is not one of the ones I bought in America, uh, but it is a five-barrel brewing extension double IPA, a mere 8.2%. The nice light one for getting back into things. Yeah, not yeah. that you should get back into things. That's not what I'm suggesting. <laughs> if you're going to fall As this the one-off wagon. experience, <laughs> it's a nice one. <laughs> uh, maybe I'll drink all this myself. Oh, <laughs> Just. Rude. Just for the sake of our friendship. You're doing it for me. I appreciate that. (laughs) Here, you talk. I'll pour. Yeah, you pour. Well, yeah. No, it's been been good. Um, Really enjoyed some of the feedback and comments that we got from the Matt Prater episode. I was um, actually really encouraged by the people that were listening to that because I know that, you know, obviously Matt has a particular view on things like homosexuality and same-sex marriage. Uh, Oh, it sounded like the uh, dude from Mowage. Yeah. Was that Princess Bride? (laughs) But, um... Yeah, I was actually uh, uh, really impressed by how many uh, people in the, the LGBTQI uh, community actually listened to that episode. And I thought, you know, some may get quite, um, I, I guess, you know, defensive and, and aggressive back towards Matt for some of his views. But they actually showed a lot of you know, grace and acceptance of, okay, you know, we have to live in a world with people that are still going to hold these opinions that, you know, and viewpoints that mm. we think are, are dangerous and harmful. But how can we do that in a respectful way? In the same way that Matt is, you know, himself was expressing, well, I, I just want to live love and yeah, you know, and I think yeah, yeah. And I think that that was, I, I was really interested by the responses like you and and that so many people who would not agree with Matt still found that we we got more feedback on that episode than any we've done. Mm. And again, like it was people who would disagree with Matt but really appreciated the way both Matt and we were trying to and. Uh, navigate the conversation in a loving way yeah so if you haven't heard that episode go back and listen to that we've got plenty of others on there now we're up to yeah as i say episode 11 yes recording 11 today yeah with dr jeff crabtree which i'm really excited about because i mean jeff uh from what i understand has done a phd on bullying and sexual harassment and things like that within the music industry Mm. um so obviously that's going to touch on things like the me too movement yes yeah yeah. all sorts of other things i'll be really interested to hear uh, I guess what his research has come up with, because I think that's something um, that often when you're having conversations, you know, particularly around subjects that can be quite uh, personal and emotionally centered, mm. that when you've also got, I guess, data and yeah. you know, scientific research and stuff, you know, how, how much do we allow that into the conversation? Especially and, if the data doesn't confirm how you feel about the, yeah. circum- the situation, right? That exactly. Really so I think those are some of the questions we're going to uh, yeah, be able to explore with Jeff. To Jeff, which I'm really looking forward to. I'm going to have a sip of this beer and then we'll get Jeff on the line. All right, so we've got Dr. Jeff Crabtree with it. Now, Jeff, just uh, before we got you on the phone, I was kind of explaining why. So Dave gave me a bit of an idea of what it is that you're an expert in and then I kind of tried to communicate that as well. So it's kind of like the Chinese whispers <laughs> of explaining what you do. So it's probably better right. for you to – but from what I understand, you've done like a, a PhD uh, in – is it like bullying, harassment, sexual harassment in the music yes. industry? Is that kind of the – or am I way off topic? <laughs> no, that's that's pretty much right on it actually. So, yeah, I – Look, it's not. It's only a part of what I do, but it is something that uh, it is uh, something that I've now got a reputation for. Particularly, obviously, obviously in the music industry, I had. I was just in. I was. I mean, yes. The answer to your question is yes. I did a PhD initially on workplace harassment in the music industry. That is bullying. Um, but uh, it turned out to be about workplace. It turned out to be bullying, but also sexual harassment because a large number of women. 
um, came forward and wanted to talk to me about their experiences of of sexual harassment mm. in defiance of the sort of in defiance of the zeitgeist, which suggests that women don't want to talk to men about these things. So the, these women did want to talk to did want to talk to me about these things. I get it on the that's was pretty interesting, right? Yeah, and yeah. Then, and in a lot of ways, that's actually why I was so keen to chat to you on our podcast. The podcast is obviously called The Awkward In Between. And and it yes. seemed to me that being a male, uh, doing that research um, may well have created some, some awkward in-between spaces as you have navigated not just the conversations with those that wanted to speak to you, but I, I kind of feel like then, then the next step of actually being the figurehead sharing your findings in public and, and you've actually found yourself uh, on TV and um, I think on the project and, and other things, so quite high profile in a few spaces, being that figurehead as a, a, a white guy talking about those things must have had its challenges. Yeah, and there was, the, there was pushback actually about my role in this, to be honest. So there, there was a... <clears throat> there was pushback from some women in the music industry who thought that I shouldn't be doing um, the research at all, um, and they were not—they <clears throat> were not in a position to stop the research, but they were in positions of power and and did actually refuse to endorse it. Um, but that—but they were in—they were in the minority. They're an influential minority, but they're in the minority, and the vast majority of women that I dealt with were just grateful that there were men getting into the debate getting into the discussion and and being willing to tell their stories and in the end <clears throat> you know the, the uh, yeah i achieved some i think the research pr gave me some prominence in the area for a while um subsequently there's been another research project that was funded that um es es essentially i mean i had conversations with the researchers but they essentially replicated my findings um, and they were that was funded by music music industry bodies, and so those those researchers will probably now take the baton and become the the kind of the lead the the leading spokespeople for the for this for this sort of wave of um, uh, this wave of you know reaction to years. It's, it's, the, the, what's going on is a re, is a reaction, a response to years of being oppressed. So. And 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 the oppressors of our old white men, frankly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, let's take it. Can I just t take us yeah, back? Just, just yeah, just, just my own um, understanding. So, what was your actual thesis? Like, what were you, what what were you researching in particular? The actual the thesis topic was tunesmiths and toxicity. Colon, uh, you know the two dots. Colon, because that you know in academic world you've got to have a, like a little snazzy mm. title Indeed. plus in the big. <laughs> Plus, in the big explanation, tunesmiths and toxicity: colon, workplace harassment in the contemporary music industries of Australia and New Zealand. Mm -hmm. So that was the thesis title, and so I I put out a questionnaire, I put out a survey, which also had two questions of sexual harassment on it about on it in you know on suspicion that there might be some people wanting to talk about it, and then I also surveyed um, people who came forward, and because uh, you know you sort of you put the research into the field, meaning you. You're, you're, uh, there's a website, you know, and you post it on Facebook. And then I got support from some significant industry bodies who send emails around and put links in, <clears throat> in their, on their web pages to, to the research. And so it started to build from there. So what was your actual, so there, what was the hypothesis? Like what were you expecting or looking to find? I, was, I had experienced workplace bullying myself in the music industry and I was expecting to find stories of other stories of bullying. Um, and I was expecting to find a lot of information on what audiences do to mu musicians in the, in the small live venue scene. I was expecting to find mm. that kind of stuff. Um, and, you know, I was expecting to find that kind of classic, I suppose, you know, booking agent, you know, like, you know, a a agent to artist bullying, like, do this or you'll never work in this town again. Mm -hmm. um, and... Um, and I, of course, and I did. I found a lot of evidence for that. Uh, what I hadn't anticipated was finding. I mean, in in essence, my first impression of everything once I was sort of got had all the data in was that everybody's bullying everybody else, 
And my, I went to my, he said to my, my supervisor, so what do you think? I said, everybody's bullying everybody else. He said, well, you can't say that. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, which is true. I mean, you basically, so essentially what I started to do was to try to notify what was happening. So I was expecting bullying. I was expecting, I suppose, I, I, I thought I might get one or two stories of sexual harassment. I was overwhelmed mm. at, at the... I was overwhelmed by the extent to which sexual harassment, sexual assault, and sexual discrimination is the experience of women in the music. I was overwhelmed by that. That it, it took me by surprise. Mm. So, and that I think that's that my surprise. My, and you know, at a personal level, I was sort of shocked by it. Um, and then, <clears throat> why, why was that? Why, why, why were you shocked by that? Well, I've never. I don't treat women like that. And the women I'm with, I don't. The women I work with, I've worked with quite a lot of women. I don't treat the women like that, and I don't. And they haven't. I haven't found that they were. I've had women in in bands that I was in, sort of be treated with some coarse language coming from the from the um, from the audience, from the punters at mm-hmm. gigs. And what we what my experience was that the men in the other men in the band closed ranks to protect the women. Mm-hmm. But also, but also that the women themselves were pretty good at shooting back. You know, they mm-hmm. weren't, um, they weren't like deer in the headlights. You know, they were, um, you know, um, I guess women who had, uh, you know, I, I, for some reason or other, seemed able to feel that kind of stuff in the moment in a way that, you know, was really sort of professional and yet put these people in their place. Mm-hmm. So. And then, of course, I work a lot in studios and things like that, and I've worked with women in studios, and I wasn't never treated women like that. And, um, so I was shocked at the extent to which it even takes place at, in at, you know where in in places like recording studios where women are coming in to do sessions, and there are two male producers, and then you know read between the lines, gentlemen, mm-hmm. you know. So um, uh, where t- the extent to which it takes place in bands. In bands, women in bands are, you know, are, are you know, have been. This is the, these are the things that people have told. Me. So what that means is this is going on. Mm. Um, you know, women in bands are abused by their own band members, by their own colleagues. So what was the opposition so, then? Because you mentioned that you know that there were there was some a, a vocal minority that was in opposition and didn't want to endorse it. What why why was that opposition there? Um, the stated reason was that a person of my gender shouldn't be doing this research. Okay. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So that's an interesting that's topic a, in itself. That's a that's a that's a that's an argument held by um, a, a certain part of the feminist uh, a, fe- a feminist th- uh, way of thinking. So there's um, there's feminism, which is a mo- which is the broadly speaking the movement to bring. That fights for equality for women. Mm-hmm. The feminist, the femi- a feminist school of thought, is the school of thought that fights for the equality of women. Um, there are, but it's not a single body of thought. There's disagreement in, in, even amongst uh, feminists as to mm-hmm. how this equality should be brought about and what what processes should be should go on to take place. And it sort of so <clears throat> um, at its broadest. Feminists all agree that <clears throat> women are discriminated uh, against culturally, systemically. Mm. That, um, and I mean, the thing about it is, as a researcher in the field, I can only agree with them. There is systemic, um, there is systemic discrimination against women, um, uh, which is what the term misogyny has now means. Actually, misogyny used to just used to mean hatred of women. But it now actually means an entrenched prejudice against women. And so any place where women are, are treated differently because they're female, um, then you know what you have is an entrenched, on the part of, by the, on, on the part of men, what you have is an entrenched prejudice. Um, so, yeah, I sort of lost my train of thought there. I mm, mean, I, right. I um, because, so I, I'm, what I was, uh, I, you know, remind me of the question, and then I'll get back to it. Yeah, no, no. Well, it's just the. I mean, because I think you're right. Like we're, we're in day. It was the probably- feminist lobby. It's this feminist thing, right? This is where we. This is where we were. <clears throat> so feminism is a is not a monolithic thing. No. Mm-hmm. It's broke. It's a bit like 
it's a bit like any other movement. It's broken down into into subsections and, and sub-factions, if you like, some of whom violently disagree with each other. So there is a group of feminists who, who argue that men have no part to play in, in the feminist project. That yes. is to say, they, uh, they argue quite forcefully that men can, because, because they're men, cannot be involved in the work of feminism. They cannot be involved in the, the project of bringing equality um, uh, across gender, because of gender, diff- you know, across the gender boundaries, your gender lines, you know. Now, and then there's another group of feminists who go that men must be our allies mm. in this project. Mm. So um, essentially, I, because I, th- I, I, you don't, people don't reveal their motives. They don't tell you why, you know, why necessarily. So all I have is, you know, the email, the email, which the emails actually, which say you can't be doing, we can't be, I can't endorse this because of your gender. Mm. It's um, interesting. Then, is, um, I think that's broader I, than that too, I, isn't it? That, I, have to um, make the assumption, I have to make the assumption that they're speaking from that feminist perspective yeah. or, or they're speaking from that particular feminist perspective. You know, I'm I am straight, I am white, and I am male, and I find that 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 same um, thought process exists in all sorts of conversations. You know, like there are people who think that as a straight guy, I should shut up and and not have anything to say about LGBTQ issues, Um, even if I'm, you know, supportive of that community. That um, I just really don't get to have an opinion or a say or or a voice, and and others who, like you're saying, will say, no, no, we we want you to, we we want people to hear your support of us. Um, the same might be true as a white guy in discussions around racism, and and like you're saying, you know, here being a male speaking into um, feminist issues. How how did you go about? Like, were you, did you take a really intentional approach to trying to how you navigated that? Well, my intentional approach was I was a university student, because a PhD is a is a university. You're a, you're a student at a university, um, so I was a university student operating under the auspices of the uni- university. I'd satisfied all the ethical requirements mm-hmm. mm. that an ethics an ethics co- an external ethics committee had imposed and suggested. I had my ethics my ethical approach was um, I'd consulted with. The women who are the um, ethics, um, who are the, on the ethics committee. One of my supervisors was female, um, so I'd consulted. She was consulted in that process mm. um, in terms of getting the research, in terms of developing the research and getting the idea out there. Um, essentially, my research was because I was my place at the university was funded by the Australian government. I was essentially being funded by the Australian government to conduct the research. What I did was I, no, I took note of that objection, but I essentially reached out. I just essentially bypassed them, that, those individuals and just had contact with women and men who saw the value in the project. And so mm-hmm. I worked with them and, and left those other people to do their own thing. And um, so I'm not saying that I ignored them, although functionally I did. Yeah. Um, I, I, wasn't, I didn't ignore them. I, I was a factor. Um, in my thinking, but at the end of the day, what's more important is the, is getting the work done. So, uh, so my approach was to you know not full speed ahead, but you know pretty much pretty close to full speed ahead. Thanks, mm-hmm. I get I note your objection. I I did actually um, email back and suggest that this position you know this position was your position. The position was I, I understand the position that you hold, but there are other voices in this debate. But I didn't get a reply. Mm. So, um, so I so I just um, you know carried on, but I still looked for the people who would support me, and 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 to be honest, the vast majority of women that I have encountered, not not just during that early period of getting the research promoted, this was just before this was before the research was even being promoted. Mm. You know, this was as in the very early days. Not not only then, but as as I was coming to. Um, getting ready to publish the, the findings and then after publishing the findings, the vast majority of women in the music industry that have had contact with me have, have been incredibly positive. And these, some of these women, are, I would describe them as incredibly intelligent, strong, resilient, 
many of them self-made because the music industry, women who succeed in the music industry don't succeed, generally speaking, because of patronage. They succeed because they just work really, really hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of probably have to demonstrate that they're, pro- that they're three times better than their male counterparts. Mm-hmm. Um, so these are, these are women who I would describe as, you know, extraordinary Comp- more than competent, extraordinary, extraordinarily skilled, extraordinarily talented, um, highly intelligent, determined, disciplined people, you know. And I would get, I was getting, I'd get a lot of, uh, I was getting a lot of um, positive feedback from them. And then, in fact, I was, you know, in, a, in a, I spoke at a conference, an Australian Women in Music Awards, a conference, mm. uh, which was in, uh, which was sort of held early this year, early twenty twenty two. And I was, I had people coming up to me I'd never met before, but people who were really, really prominent and who were just safe there, thank you for your, thank you for doing that work. Yeah. Thank you for doing that work. So there is a body of women who go, it's, it, it doesn't matter whether it's, there's it, a body of women who basically go, and let, I think their ethos, I, I can't speak for them, but I suspect their ethos is we can't achieve equality without men being part of the, the picture. Mm-hmm. Uh, men have to believe in it too. Otherwise, it becomes adversarial. It, be- it becomes polarised, like you see now in US politics and mm-hmm. and actually to a large extent now in UK politics and where this is gigantic polarity and there's not a lot of meeting ground in the middle. Um, uh, and there's not a lot of conversation between those two groups. So, so the, Yeah, we, um, we had a conversation with... Um uh, Ray Lee, a, a couple of episodes ago, who's a you know a, f- a female artist, uh, and one of the right. things we were talking about in that is that when the divisions there, when that adversity there, that tends to for, from observation, obviously haven't done any academic research into it, but the hypothesis there is that that actually the adversary ends up fueling more misogyny, not less. Would that would be a fair? It's a com- that's a fair comment. I mean, I I've, um, I have to say that's not. A PhD research findings are really narrow, you know, mm-hmm. and so um, and so. This is not a part of my findings, but it'd be my considered view mm. that um, uh, that you that if you if you don't build alliances and you don't build connection and you don't build networks and instead you adopt a purely adversarial approach, you, you finish up getting what's going on in Ukraine right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, various versions of that, just at, mm-hmm. you know, or a cultural level. So it's the key, the key to success in this area is to is to um, build connections of people where you can help them change their view. Mm. Um, and, yeah. and people will change their view. By the way, people will change their view. People do change. You know, I, I you know, I think, for example. Um, Dave, you referred to the LGBTQI plus mm. community, which, mm. um, and the position that, that, that they now are able to the, the platform they're able to speak from. That's a platform that I think would have been impossible twenty years ago. Mm. So what's happened? What's happened is, in somewhere along the line, of course, there's been a lot of activism, and of course, there's been some um, adversarial activism. Um, I think you know you've not you couldn't see a, a, maybe a stronger form of adversarial activism than the response of the the gay and lesbian Mardi Gras to Fred Nile, mm-hmm. the Reverend Fred Nile, Fred mm-hmm. Nile, who in New South Wales, a senior New South Wales politician, who was a um, former Uniting Church minister, probably still is because he refers to himself as Reverend, um, and he he was openly adversarial towards the gay and lesbian community and they were openly adversarial towards him to the extent that they would have every year i think the head of their gay and lesbian mardi gras procession they would have a float with a gigantic effigy of fred nile yeah um so that he would be he was in many represented the he was like the figurehead of all opposition to Mm -hmm. um to to this community but so but at the same time, so they did that. There was a lot of adversarial, but none of that moved Fred Nile an inch. Mm. Um, um, I, I, but it's for sure that community was actively forming connections and helping people understand 
how what it, what it was like to be them, you know, helping them understand. Because I think the at its heart, this uh, you know that community is asking to be treated equally. You know, like treat us as if treat treat us with equal dignity. Treat us as if we have equal you know equal value. Treat, treat us yeah. as human beings. And so, um, and it's the, ultimately that's that's the same. That's the uh, that's the same cry of the feminist movement. We're we are qualitatively equal. We're qualitatively um, have as much value economically, politically, socially, culturally as men. Um, and so that's the that's in essence the um, the cry of the, the the feminist cause is actually the cause of equality. It's the cause of justice, to be honest, mm-hmm. because there's a gigantic injustice has been done to women. Mm. Um, for centuries, centuries, um, and then the same thing is uh, true for LBGTQI people who have had to, you know, uh, in order to function and be functioning members of society, have had to keep their um, their sexual preference or their sexual orientation um, a secret. So, ways that heterosexual people don't, you know, don't even think is an mm-hmm. issue. Mm. So, so I feel like. Um, Move forward. The great, there've been great moves forward, and of course, there's always going to be the adversarial approach. But I think the great moves forward have been accomplished by persuasion, um, by helping people see things differently. And people will not be persuaded, and they will not see things differently if they're being attacked. Yeah, you have to, you have to, you have to make, you have to bring people alongside of you in a way where they don't feel threatened. Yeah. Right. Yeah. One one of the issues that I think was key to us starting the podcast was the idea of exploring some of that. We, you know, like again, as a um, as a middle aged white straight guy, um, yeah. Some of those conversations. Actually, I'll, an example. Um, we've just spent some time in the south of America and yeah. uh, in the red states. Yes, indeed. And uh, uh, spent some time at civil rights museums. We spent some time, um, we did a tour of one of the plantations outside of New Orleans. I think yeah. I said that like an American, New Orleans. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, and and obviously some of those things, doing those tours as a white man can be quite confronting. Uh, and I found myself wondering who would I have been if I was raised in that family? You know, if I was, you know, they were taking us through the family tree of one of these, flan- pl- you know, white families, plantation-owning families, and I thought, if I was that son, if that was my context, who would I have been? Would I have uh, brought change to things that I look at now as horrendous, slavery and, and whatnot, or would I have just not known any better? Would I have just been stuck in the context, the cultural context that I was handed. And to step back from that into my actual context, I think, you know, and obviously as as a podcast, we've explored plenty, both mine and Damien's uh, significant conservative uh, church upbringings. Uh, And out of that, I find myself with questions that are quite awkward in different contexts. There are uh, whilst I have uh, journeyed a long way in my understanding around things like uh, LGBTQI plus issues, uh, um, I have this a whole lot of baggage I'm carrying. And sometimes it doesn't actually feel safe to have certain conversations. It's kind of like, hey, I, I'm, I feel like what if this is true, but also aware that maybe I only think that might be true because of how I've been raised – and yet even daring to actually ask the question you feel like is already not safe when it comes to some of those voices, uh, perhaps on the more extreme ends of the conversation. So I think you're right. It's hard. If you're feeling attacked, then you don't even feel, can I even ask this question? Can I hear somebody else's opinion about it in order to assess where I, you know, what I should be believing? It's, it's hard. Yeah, and you, what you've just done there is, raise a number of really um, important questions that I believe every one of us should ask. Mm-hmm. You know, how would I – first of all, I think – so first of all, you know, one, one of the – obviously one of the implications is how do we have these conversations now with, mm-hmm. you know, in the, in the context of extremely conservative people. And, mm. I, I, and, I, and I want to come back to that. Mm. 
but um, but but the other one, which I think is a really the really uh, I mean they're both really important questions. But this is a really really important question: is how would I have been? What would I have been like in that in that circumstance? And I think that um, uh, we we can't we can't know mm-hmm. because we are, we we are creatures of culture. Mm. We are like the fish who swim in the ocean surrounded by the water that we prefer mm. or we're surrounded by the water that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. And um, and we don't know where, you know, you only get uncomfortable when the, when something changes, you know, yeah. um, or you see different possibilities because, you know, when you grow up in these, uh, in, in say, in a conservative church environment, you know, you don't know anything else. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the reason you don't know anything else is because, Excuse me. What church, like any other cultural organisation, kind of curates the information that it delivers. It curates it quite carefully, and then and then there are sort of ch- systems that reinforce the curation of it. Yeah. Like there, you know, there are, um, but there are so many different forms of and, and forms of, I guess, dogma or, or theological approaches to things, even in the church. Even in the sector of the, in that part of the world that we would call the church, I mean, there's a different, there are different approaches. There's a different approach to faith held by those who subscribe to Roman Catholicism, um, which is different. Um, again, but even even amongst Roman Catholics, there are great broad varieties. Yeah. There are there are Jesuits, there are Franciscans, there are Maronites. Um, all all outsider maybe maybe subtly different but to those who are inside those things those are they're important differences you know mm-hmm. important distinctions and it's, and then you, when you go outside the roman catholic church then there are the other then there's the for example there's the, the anglican church all of the protestant forms of faith mm-hmm. there's the anglican church in australia then there's baptist churches and so on and so forth then you have the contemporary evangelical Pente- pentecostal or post-pentecostal slash charismatic churches um and all of them have their own distinctives, and and then what they tend to do is kind of huddle in their own uh, bubble, communication bubble. Echo so chamber, you know, yeah. <laughs> Catholic priests tend to go to Catholic conferences or Catholic mm-hmm. retreats. Anglican priests tend to go to Anglican synods, and so on and so forth. They don't. There's not a lot of um, there's not a lot of looking at alternative ideas, even within under even under the broad umbrella of faith. Yes. Um, yeah. So and it's a pretty broad umbrella, you know, because. You wouldn't. You wouldn't. If you you could spend your entire life in any one of these churches and not realize, for example, that there was a Greek Orthodox Church or a mm-hmm. Russian or a, or a Russian Orthodox Church or mm-hmm. even a thing called the Coptic Church, which is uh, the uh, Coptic Church is the oldest form of uh, the Christian faith that we know in his uh, historically. But these guys who are the oldest, the most longest continuous um, form of, of theological thought. Aren't even consulted mm-hmm. yeah. by these other <laughs> by these other groups, you know. And so there's careful curation of all of this stuff that is sort of um, many respects. It's like I, I, I think of the conferences, the church conferences, and things like that as kind of echo chambers where yeah. you just get the same kind of people um, talking to the same kind of issues and reinforcing mm-hmm. existing exist mm-hmm. and confirming existing biases and um, and opinions. So so those things are really so. For the the first step out of that, the first step out of that little echo chamber of thinking is to go to some of these places and be confronted with the reality like you did and to ask yourself, how would I be? And to be honestly, the honest answer, I think, is we don't know, but my my goodness, I could have been and I could have been a slave owner or I could have. Uh, yeah, and I, I mean the same is true, and it's not just. By the way, it's not just those southern states, and it's not just the no. churches. And um, think of Germany post World War Two. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and German honest and upright German citizens whose society and whose government was responsible for the Holocaust, mm. or or indeed, you know, honest uh, Russian citizens. Whose society in the nineteen fifties, the nineteen sixties was responsible for and profited from a Uk- the Ukrainian famine because the wheat that was grown in Ukraine was shipped to to feed Russia mm-hmm. Russians. That was at the behest of Joseph Stalin, and Stalin had his own um, anti Jewish 
mm-hmm. um, yeah. Pur- yeah. purges and pogroms. And then it goes back even further. So you can go and then you, you've got it in, and it's not just a white man's disease. Mm. You know, you've got it in, um, you've got it uh, in China right now with the Han Chinese who are the, who are the ethnic group who are in the majority of government in China. And you've got them, you've got their interactions with the Uyghur, pop, the Uyghur community. You've got um, in uh, Rwanda, the, mm-hmm. uh, there was the Rwandan genocide at its, at its basis was two different ethnicities um, in, and one became supreme over the other. So you've got stuff is not, it's not a, it's not a white man's problem, human problem. Yes, yeah. Problem. And, it, yeah. And, it's, and it's repeat and it's based on um, other, what, what, uh, what uh, academics refer to as othering. That is you make mm-hmm. somebody the other. And in that, in that othering, they are less than, they're less than, they become less than human. Um, and all, all sexual harassment and all bullying has in some ways has a, has, at its basis, this othering yeah, phenomenon, mm. which is a, hu- a human phenomenon, and we tend we do it, and we've done it, we've done it, continue to do it culturally. Uh, over, uh, we've done it for centuries. We've done it for the entire. We've done it for our entire history. Yes. Keynes, you know, Keynes Lou Abel, right? So, uh, because you know the vegetarian meat meat mm. thing, you know, like there's a, and when we start to do that, what we do is we tend that that. Othering is the first step towards objectifying people, and and it's kind of a process of dehumanization. And we do it. Um, uh, we do it all the time. People who are, and we do it in ways that are that are, that are not apparent, not apparently harmful. Mm. You know, mm, football yeah. fans. You know, who are the, mm. you know when it comes to the it's the state of origin, it's the Maroons and the Blues. You know, so there are the uh, you've got there's those who are in, and then those who are out. Yeah. Um. So. And generally speaking, in sporting events, it's harmless. Although people have been killed for it, mm-hmm. to be honest. Um, but generally speaking, it's 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 a harmless sort of rivalry, you know, that a part that forms part of the cultural experience of everyday life and people, you know, Western nations for sure. Mm. Um, but um, and you see it. Let's going back to the church issue. You see it in churches. There's mm. othering. There's people who are the people who are saved and the people who aren't. Yep. And so you've got this kind of categorization to have who should have equal dignity, equal yeah. equal respect should be regarded with equal dignity and equal respect. And then suddenly, when you other them, they're the other. They're so not. let's bring and, that back to you and, for a second, and, Jeff. I, w- I want to bring that back to you, yeah. okay? Because from what I what I um, gather, getting back to that, yeah, that that small group within the the feminist community um, who had issue with the fact that okay, well, here is an older white male doing this particular yep. research. Now, on one hand, they've othered you um, in doing that, right? They, they've, they've seen you as, yeah, you're the perpetrator of the, the issues that we are actually fighting against here. So how dare you step in yep. and advocate for that? Um, and it's interesting, right? Because on a, on, a, on a philosophical level, you go, well, that's a logical fallacy. Like that's kind of like saying, you know, that, that a can- only a cancer patient can do research on cancer mm. if only a, a feminist woman can yes. do research on feminist issues. However, I want to bring it back to you then because there's also the opportunity, I think, where it's important for us to also see ourselves as the other. Um, And so for you, in what ways when you were approaching this research did you need to look at yourself and go, okay, I am a white older male, um, which means that I in some ways have connection with a lot of the perpetrators in these issues. How does that shape the way in which I approach this? Yeah, well, absolutely. So that is absolutely correct. That, that in, uh, I had to actually address that. Um, I addressed it in a number of ways. Um, I addressed it in the interview process by, by um, as I mentioned before, by being really cautious about, um, you know, reading trying to read a person, the other person's state of being, how they were feeling and, you know, whether they were feeling threatened or stressed or whatever. And by also trying to construct physical in, um, the physical, the physical environment in a way that was mm. the least threatening po- as possible. Um, I also actually took the step of contacting them the next day to find out how they were. And in every case, they all felt better and they were thankful actually for the opportunity. 
every case. I didn't have one case where somebody came back to me and said, no, I'm struggling. Um, and then I did, as I was getting ready to publish, contact some of my, uh, some of the participants and so I'm about to publish, do you want to see what's going to be, what your contribution is? Because I'd actually, I remembered that in some cases I'd talk to them about it because I felt like some of the things that they were saying were going to be, would make them vulnerable. So I offered them the opportunity to go, yeah, that's good or that's bad or can you please delete that? Mm. And so I was I sort of, I, I guess what you could say, I was, I went out of my way to have consideration for their, for the way they were, for how they are. Mm. And their, their their place of being in the world, um, I um, I addressed directly in the research my gender and the fact that I was in fact a representative of the group of this group of people. And, you know, I am yeah. an old, you know, an aging white male, um, and so therefore I have privilege and power and so on. I had to address it. I had to address it. In, and I, that's where I address it in terms of the academic debate. So, you know, you don't just, can't just say, look, here I'm an old white guy doing this research. And um, I addressed it in terms of where that would sit in feminist thinking. Because there is, as I said before, a body of feminist thought that says that men need to be allies. So I argued that I was in that, I was going to occupy that position as an ally. Um, I had women who were, talk to me before I took the research and go, you cannot regard yourself as coming as the knight in shining armor mm, coming in right. coming in to save coming in to save the day. And I didn't in the end. And I guess the way I I can the way I can summarize it is I try to retain as much of an open mind as possible mm -hmm. about what I was hearing and then analyze it in a way that gave greatest respect to the testimony of the of my participants and to point to the point where at some point in there my supervisor was reflecting to somebody else actually but he, he passed on this information to me uh asked uh, because the question would have been asked is like is he imposing himself into this research and and uh my supervisor said actually i'm when i read when i'm reading the work i, I can hardly hear his voice and I, so what I set out to do ultimately was to, was to, um, what I set out to do was to give voice to the participants. Mm. So if you read my thesis, which I, I mean, I, you know, it's a 107,000 words of academic writing. So it's, a, it's not, it's not, it's heavy going. It's not, not light, it's not light reading. And I certainly don't recommend you read it. Certain chapters in particular, I certainly don't recommend you read it just before going to sleep. You'll have terrible nightmares. Mm. But, um, but essentially, a lot of the the big the big analysis chapters where I, where I discuss the major the main problems and the main dynamics and the main vectors of harassment are are built around the testimony of participants. So I'm, there are huge sections where I'm just citing or quoting what participants had said. In, so in essence, what's going on is my work ultimately was giving voice to to. The, the these people who had experienced these this abuse um so that was my i i suppose that was how you put pull all those things together i definitely i was not the knight in shining armor i had owned my privilege um i acknowledge though that my privilege exists you have to acknowledge that your privilege exists but it also what to do with that privilege there is in the academic discourse a place there is a place in the, so in the discourse of feminism, there is a place for men to contribute um, to the feminist project or the, pro, the project, oh, I, I mean, they refer to it as the feminist project. I, could, I just think of it as the project of equality mm. and, the, and, the, and, the pro, and the project of bringing justice. So, um, so there, there is that group of people who, who hold that position, women who hold that position, women thinkers who hold that position, and so because they're all there's a debate going on and, and, and there is no resolution to the debate, nobody's won that debate, it's appropriate it's appropriate for us to find ourselves to find my I found I situated myself, if you like, in the context of that debate and said I'm aligning myself with this thinking, this school of thought. Um, which is about the 
the, um, how the role that men can play in bringing about equality. Mm. So um, I, in doing that, you acknowledge the fact, you acknowledge that you pr- your privilege, but you and you acknowledge that there are these other people who've been fighting this battle a lot longer than you have. Mm. Uh, but then you are going, but I'm bringing uh, what I'm going to do is bring my skills to the ta- to the table and then offer up information which then they can run on and proceed with. You know, because I'm not sure that I'm, I want to be known as the workplace and sexual harassment guy, mm. and I don't, and that's not that's not where my um, that's not where the I mean, I'm happy to I'm happy to keep discussing it. I'm happy to keep contributing it, and and I'm happy to be uh, if if people want to pay me to consult to their companies, you know, about this stuff. I'm happy to be doing that. But uh, but really, that work emerged from my larger concern about how you manage the well-being of creative thinkers. You know, mm-hmm. so and this book that I, I wrote with my wife, the Living with a Creative Mind, and so that that. Which is excellent, I've got to say. That's one I have thank read. <laughs> thank you. Right, thank you. So, I mean, and, we're, and you know, we're, we're just about to release the third edition, which isn't all that much different from the first edition or the second edition, but just with some um, – we've changed some of the artwork a little bit and changed a couple of the terminology. But um, that, that's, where, that's where this all emerged from. But then, of course, once you start di- – you know, once you start digging deeply into the issues, any issues anywhere, once you start digging deeply into them, you finish up turning over a rock and then there are some pretty nasty things lying underneath. Mm-hmm. So you then have the option of going, oh, look away, <laughs> put the rock back and look away, or mm-hmm. you go, we, we must address these things if we're to have a better world. Yeah. So I, in summary, then I had a whole bunch of questions, you know, what, how, what about me? You know, because in one sense, because their objection is valid, by the way. Mm. The objection of these women who who objected to me doing the research, it's a valid objection. Mm. But also my, but but equally valid is the other view, right? Because it's not a, it's not a, the objection to men doing anything to help women in this area is not held by every woman. Yes. And so, and it's not held, and it's certainly not held by, um, are the majority of women that I worked with and and contributed my work to. I think I was um, I was at the, I was at this Women in Music Awards. I think I was one of the very very few men there, mm. and I was in this. I was in a session that Tina Arena was taking, and she was fabulous. By the way, she was extraordinary, incredibly experienced performer, and she mm. was talking about her ex- her experiences in the context of. You know, the, in the context of sexual harassment and in the context of um, discrimination against women, and in the context, and particularly systemic discrimination against women, and she was answering questions. And I'm, I'm in the room. I'm in the room. There's ninety, I think. There are ninety other women in the room, and then there's me. <laughs> and I'm just sitting. I'm because I just I delivered uh, part of a, a. You know, I've been on a Q and I've been on a panel Q and A panel that she hadn't been there for. Um, and I'm sort of sitting there with with my some of my panelists and um, some other people who had wanted to have a conversation with me following the panel. But I'm just sitting there, like just you know, rather I'm a, I'm I'm quite tall, you know, six foot, you know, and I'm I, I'm you know reasonably I take up a reasonable amount of space. I'm and I'm dressed all in black and I've got you know black jacket, black pants, black t-shirt, you know, and my kind of grey hair. So I was a kind of a picture of grey and black in my black backpack and i'm sitting around me and then um, she just kept looking across at me sort of going what the heck is this guy doing here i don't know we never actually spoke but i'm sure it crossed her mind because she kept looking across at me in a room where there was essentially a room it was all about that was an event run by women in the music industry for women in the music industry to benefit women in the music industry to give in (laughs) sense secret inside knowledge on the on what it's like to be a woman in the music industry, and there's a man sitting there. Um, and I, you know, I, we never we never resolved the discussion, but she was kind of looking at me a little bit like, "Wow, <laughs> really? really? You're here?" I actually, I don't think it, she's smart. She's tough. She's not. She didn't. I'm I'm believe, fully believe she didn't moderate any of her comments, and um, which were insightful. So um, I thought it was I was 
I thought I was greatly benefited by being here to hear her speak, to be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I but, wanted to um, ask. I wanted to ask on that then, because I, I think you know, and particularly as we draw towards the end of the episode, I think what I'd love to hear from you then, as a man who is in that exact event, right, hmm. somewhere where it's for women in the industry, it's you know run by women in the industry for the benefit of women in the industry, with that secret information of what it's like to be a woman in the in the industry, you're in a kind of a unique position where, and particularly on this podcast, where we're kind of picturing ourselves at other white, middle aged, middle class, you know, generally straight males and whatever. Um, what what have you learnt then that you would communicate, I guess, to your peers of what it is like to be a woman in the music industry from your involvement in your research in an event like that? Oh, it is an utterly different experience to being a man in the in the music mm. industry. That's what I've learnt. It's uh, it's like night and day. Mm. The women are women have to develop a whole bunch of skills that men do not have to develop. They um, and they have to figure out how to get around roadblocks that are constantly thrown up for them um and by the systemic discrimination so you know a lot of music industry network the entire music industry runs on networking by the way you know like it's a it's a it it's even though it seems large from the outside from the inside you know everybody knows everybody um and but but to get into that those rooms where everybody knows everybody and you can you can sort of suddenly become a person that they would know you have to go to those industry events and and, and there and there are the kinds of events like after parties, um, at the end of tour parties, record la- label launches, art, you know, artist promo things, um, uh, you know, end of conference parties and things like that. Um, and there's a lot of networking happens in those in a social space that there's, where there's a lot of alcohol and and you know it's in that space there's a lot of where women are experiencing sexual harassment. Mm. And so, so in order to go, so men who attend these don't have to protect themselves um, from the possibility of their being um, of them being sexually assaulted. They don't have to. Women have to to be at those events. Women have to develop all of these strategies to co- to negotiate this complex. You know, I'm just giving you one example, right? So for them to get ahead, for them to get the gigs, for them to be able to get into the networks of power and influence, they have to go to these events. But at those events, they're going to be sexually assaulted, literally. Um, and so they have to develop these strategies for navigating through that complex uh, web of, like, how do I kind of say no to somebody? Like, so a senior record executive wants to put his hand on my bum. How do I? How do I deal with that? What do I do? How can't if this was in a normal sort of circumstance in a normal company, you wouldn't you just you wouldn't ignore it. It'd be reported. There would be an HR. There's a chain of command. The guy would be fired. You mm-hmm. know. But in in these kind of circumstances, you can't. Because this person wields extraordinary power, mm. how do you kind of negotiate that? So women have um, they've developed these really complex strategies, uh, which I didn't actually. To be honest, I've got all this evidence from from my PhD, but ne- I've never actually reported on them because there was there's a whole bunch of stuff that I found that I, even though I wrote 107,000 words, I didn't. There's a lot of things I didn't get a chance to write about. Mm. That's one of them. So there. So um, they've developed these. Uh, to cope that men do not have to develop um they're un- they're paid less than than men for the same kind of work they're boxed into jobs roles that men aren't boxed into they're, just because they're women um, and they've had to develop these complex strategies for being able to get around these kind of roadblocks um, so the ones who uh, the ones who have you know sort of fought and won you know, turn out to be inc- uh, sort of incredibly smart, incredibly clever, incredibly tough-minded um, in ways that a lot of the men who are their colleagues aren't, you know. Um, and so because there is a sexual component in which women are seen as... Um, women are seen as available to the men sexually because of, uh, because of an, uh, an industry culture... Uh, uh, you know, whereas if you're in an, any other industry, that's not the case. If you're mm. in a room with a whole bunch of senior female executives, they're not sexually available to you. They're mm. female colleagues. Mm. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. Uh, what have I learned? Well, it's it's the the, the experience. The, the women who choose to stay in the industry and stand up and navigate this complex social. Environment where it's like, uh, I mean, it's like trying to sort of. I think I, I sort of equate it mentally as 
running through a minefield blindfolded, you know, mm-hmm. sort of, um, who survived that experience. There are few and far between. A lot, a great many women give up their, a great many women give up in despair and disappointment. Um, and so there is, a, there is an enormous loss, therefore, to, the, to our cultural industries mm, when, yeah. we, when we've shut down these voices and shut down their ideas. Because, I, um, you know, women see and perceive things differently than men. Yeah. Um, it sounds like a um, men are from Mars, women yeah, from yeah. Venus generalization, <laughs> but um, it's to do with the it's to do with neurobiology. So that you know, for example, we know that female women the, the, in their brains use the cross connections. They utilize the cross connections, the corpus callosum, which is this body of neural tissue that joins the left and the right hemispheres. They use that far more than men. More of it than men. They use it far more than men. And so they're, that, what that actually means is they're processing the world, the, the, they're, they're processing their sensory environment differently than men do. Mm. Now, that's neither, that's neither good nor bad. What it is is different, which means that um, women are perceiving things that men are not perceiving. Mm. And we need that perception. We need, that, that, we need those understandings to make the best decisions. Because, mm-hmm. I mean, ultimately, ultimately, we move ahead uh, any organisation moves ahead if we have the best ideas, yeah. which is why I think we should never be afraid of the debate or the discussion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we um, we move ahead. Let the best ideas win. Mm. Um, and so, if we are discounting a whole set of ideas because they've come from women, mm-hmm. it's 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 like trying to you know fight uh, a battle with one arm tied tied behind your back. You know, mm. which if I can, if I could just before we leave, yeah, yeah. circle. Mm. Circle back to the to Dave's you know the experience of being in the red states. I I think that willingness to interrogate yourself is the first step. The willingness to for everybody, mm. the willingness to interrogate yourself and go how and be honest and critical critical self reflection and go how would I have been in that situation? Would what, what kind of person would I have been? Because I sort of feel like for the great bulk of humanity, we tend to go along with our culture. Mm. We tend to <clears throat> we tend to swim downstream because it's the it's the path of least resistance. We tend not to be like like most of us tend not to be like you know Greta Thunberg, you know the the Swedish whose name is pronounced Greta Thunberg, but there's everybody calls her Greta Thunberg or Thunberg, mm. you know mm. the, the climate change activist. We tend mm-hmm. to be not like her, um, and we tend to sort of just go along with things. And so I. Um, you know, and I, and I think, you know, we tend to be like, you know, we tend to be like like the German people and the churches, for example, in Germany essentially went along with what was happening in Nazi Germany Not at the time. Not everybody. Dietrich Bonhoeffer didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, he lost his life as a consequence. Mm-hmm. But we tend to be, most of us tend to be not Dietrich Bonhoeffer and we tend to be not Leata Thunberg, you know, no matter what people may think about climate change, uh, you know, in your in your audience. But 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 I guess the first step is critical is the willingness to be is to the willingness to question our assumptions yeah. and the willingness to be self reflective. But uh, as I wanted to circle back to that those conversations that you're having within conservative communities, it is a hallmark. We now know there's a bunch of research on this. It's a hallmark of conservative thinking that is inflexible. Yeah. There are there's so inflexibility, conservatism uh, go together. Mm. And so if you think of all of humanity, if we think of us all of us on a bell curve, like mm. as we can, to do with height, obviously, you know, there are very tall people and there are very short people and then there are people in the middle. So, and the vast majority of us are in the middle. Um, you can think of all human attributes, I think, as, as occurring on a, on a bell curve. You can think of intelligence on a bell curve. You can think of athletic ability on a bell curve. You can think of creativity on a bell curve because we do know that there are some people who are more highly, more highly creative thinkers and there are people who are less creative thinkers. Um, we know, for example, that the, um, the ability to imagine is on a bell curve. There are people who don't have any visual imagination at all. Mm. Um, they, su- they suffer. It's condition. It's a condition. It's called aphantasia. But um, but there. But you can. It's not like a suddenly somebody can't imagine things visually. There's a there's a continuum, you know. And most of us are in the middle. Um, and so it comes to flexibility. 
that is the willingness to change our thinking and change our beliefs. And in in uh, it turns out, um, quite recent research that um, highly conservative people are also inflexible in their beliefs, which means they um, they suffer se severely from confirmation bias. They they reject information that is um, that opposes what they think. Yeah. And they and they select information that confirms what they already think, and so they keep. And of course, Facebook um, and social media allow these echo chambers to actually amplify those sounds yeah, and that uh -huh. stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, um, which probably accounts for the rise of a, sort of a polarization in, in these kinds of things. But mm. the but they're not. But at the very but the the most conservative um, uh, among us. Uh, will not change their thinking no matter what kind of information is put before them. They just have this yeah. inflexibility. Now, on the other side of that, by the way, flexibility of thinking, the ability to be flexible is associated with create high creativity. Mm. So, so now it's possible to sort of say, you wouldn't say that one thing causes the other, but you would say there's an association. Um, there's an association between creativity and flexibility of thinking. You would mm. also say there's a negative there's a negative association between conservatism and creativity as a consequence mm -hmm. because inflexible thinking is people who think inflexibly who are inflexible in their thinking aren't creative. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I've actually got so, one more question for you, Jeff. Just, just sorry. Yeah. I just dropped a bomb. Yeah, <laughs> no, and you have, and that's why this is why he's, and I want to bring it back to what you were talking about before about the experience of women in the music industry. Um, because this kind of like I, I'm, you know, I'm in the music industry myself, mm -hmm. uh, fairly male presenting. Um, although probably <laughs> I kind of balk at wanting to identify as male because there's, there's so many characteristics of masculinity that I don't fit into. But that's a different topic in itself. But more so that idea. So I think you've pointed on something really um, significant in the sexualization in those, um, you know, the, those networking meetings. Yeah, you know, as you say, it, it becomes uh, a sexual climate. Um, there's a lot of alcohol, you know, and let's just say hypothetically, you know, you might have, I don't know, maybe the former CEO of say like a Sony Records or something like that, um, <laughs> yeah. purely hypothetical, um, <laughs> who's obviously wielding a, a huge amount of power and has a room where there's, you know, there's women in there, some of which he may find attractive and also perceiving as sexually available and therefore wants to yeah. manipulate or use his power to gain some sort of, you know, sexual access to these women. What, yeah. what, Concerns me, I guess, on on the side of that too, is that while that in itself is hugely problematic and dangerous and exploitive of those women, that there are po the potential for men in who also want to access the power that someone from like a Sony Records or somebody else has, and says to themselves, "Well, this is unfair because I don't have that that sexual capital that that person's wanting to exploit out of these women to be able to, you know." to get the power that I want from this person either. And that ends up getting directed that, that I guess the resentment for that doesn't get re uh, directed at the, the, the structure of the industry, but gets directed towards the women and thus fuels misogyny. Would that be a fair comment? Look, I'm just going, yes. Um, look, in general, yes. I mean, in general, yes. But I want to say about your hypothesis, by the way, on the, on the hypothesis of a former Sony CEO. <laughs> with an, who, I get purely who, hypothetical. Who, yeah, I know. I know. I know, but given that in the real world there was a there is a former CEO of Sony who's you know quite publicly stood down. Um, I want to say that there is no evidence. We have no evidence. No, there is no evidence that the former CEO of Sony Music, Dennis Hamblin, ever <coughs> um, committed any form of sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. um, so no one has no one has come forward, and this the stories that surround. There's nothing in my research to suggest that he was a perpetrator of sexual harassment. Mm. Um, and then there are <coughs> and people who I've spoken to since my research who know who you know work you know been in the, the close vicinity of Dennis Hanlon all, all say the same thing, which is there was never any sexual harassment of women. Um, what was different um, for um, uh, so, uh, for the to Dennis Hanlon is the allegations of bullying, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. in which were, um, you know, he was, I think, an equal, I think it'd be fair to say, uh, an equal opportunity bully in, in, in that. <laughs> mm, just well, I think, I mean, these are allegations, right? So, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, um, and they were often repeated allegations but of, of workplace harassment. Mm. 
mm. also known as bullying, of men and women. Yeah. Um, okay. How? But what I want to say, I want to say that first of all. Yeah, that's former fair. CEO. Okay. So, but the second part of that though is <clears throat> there is a, there was a very very influential piece of research that found that if a senior executive tolerates harassment, just tolerates it, that is, turns a blind eye, then it's permission giving for people lower down the chain to do that. Mm. And, and, and so what that means is even though um, you might be a senior executive, you've never sexually harassed, and you could put your hand on your hands, I've never sexually harassed a woman in, in, you know, in my career. But at the same time, if you and but if you regarded yourself as a tough operator and you would sort the sheep from the goats, that kind of language, you know, and that and that, but but that your behaviour did qualify as workplace harassment. That climate that you create is permission giving for all forms of harassment, and mm. because I do, what well, something I haven't actually said to this podcast that I need to say right now is that all forms of harassment emerge primarily from an imbalance of power. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. The powerful, powerful people bully, sexually harass less powerful people. Misogyny is a big part of that too. You know, like so, the sexual harassment emerges because powerful men uh, exert their power in ways that uh, in, are in a sexualized context. So that, that Damien, that thing that you were just referring to is for sure. That's the that's the experience of women. But but the there is a, there's the sexual component. Which is the, which emerges from misogyny? That is the objectification of women. But then there is the power component, and what's really what's really toxic is those things come together mm-hmm. in 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 create in the creative industries, and particularly they have done in the music industries of Australia and New Zealand. They've come together. The men are at the top. The men hold the power. But then also there's this uh, this view of how women should be treated, you know, or can be treated, and what they're there for. So. Um, Power imbalance. Yeah. Power imbalance. So wherever you have, in in wherever you have in any organisation or in in any social grouping, wherever you have an ex, an, an imbalance of powers, uh, you have the potential for bullying. And mm. the the bullies do it because they can get away with it. And I think that's the big lesson. People, if people are called to it, if people are bullies and then they're called to account for it, then then people then other people stop bullying. But yeah. if people aren't called to account for it. Yeah, then the bullying goes on. Uh, that's also, awesome. and I reckon that's a great place to end uh, in, in the episode. Is yeah. that idea that you know that where where the rubber really hits the road then is undermining and pulling down those power imbalance structures, which is as you say, that's a justice issue, which is what the feminists are standing for. That's what most you know yes. advocates are standing for. You know, they want to yes. see justice, and yeah. I think justice is a moral issue that we should all be standing for. So that's a great uh, yep. place to end. Yep. Okay. Great. No, thank you so much, Jeff. Your time uh, has been greatly valued. We'd love to having a chat. It's been fabulous. I can't wait to next chance to get up to Queensland and bump into you in person. For you know, it's been too long. <laughs> <laughs>